Now let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Uh, as we return to Matthew, we're in chapter 15 uh, this week, and we are going to be reading four short passages from Matthew 15 to, to begin. Uh, they all have to do with different locations of where Jesus was as he was moving around uh, the of Galilee, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Then moving on to verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Then verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And a great crowd came to him, bringing with them the blame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And he put them at his feet and healed them. So that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. And then verse 39, after sending the crowds away, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. May God bless the preaching of his word. Thank you, Dave. Well, excited to get back into Matthew. We've had a break from it for a couple of months, and this morning we pick up our chapter-by-chapter chapter sermon series through Matthew. We've covered the first 14 chapters in the first half of the year. We took a break for the summer, and now we're back in with chapter 15. And chapter 15 is a really interesting chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, as I hope to show you this morning, because it marks a very interesting series of moments in the ministry of Jesus, which up to this point has not happened. And what makes these moments so interesting is that in this chapter, Jesus is making his sharpest break from conventional Jewish religion of that day. He's thought of as a rabbi, as a teacher of Israel, having come into ministry at age 30 and gathered his disciples and started teaching and preaching and healing and doing Ministry and but here in this chapter, he's making a real controversial stand. He's beginning to say, don't think I am just like every other Jewish teacher. Don't think that I have just come to fit in with the conventional religion of the day. He is being very disruptive and very disturbing and people are beginning to take note of it. And we all know where that will eventually take him which is to the cross. But this is it in seed form. This is Jesus beginning to break away from the pack, both religiously and relationally, as we're going to see this morning. People are clearly disturbed by what Jesus is doing. And I want to prove that for a second. I just want to highlight a few verses that show how disturbed people are being with what Jesus is doing. The first two verses, which Dave read for us, then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition? See what's happening? 
disturbing the religious establishment, disturbing the scribes and Pharisees. Look down at verse 12. He's disturbing his disciples too. Then the disciples came and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you saying certain things? Did you, did you pick up on that, Jesus? Also, we see him disrupting his disciples again in verse 23, but he did not answer her a word, talking about the Canaanite woman, which we'll get to soon. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying after us. See, Jesus is doing things that are making the disciples uncomfortable. And then again, in verse 33, and the disciples said to him, after Jesus commanded, or is getting ready to do the miracle again of feeding several thousand people, he says, where, the disciples say, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? See, Jesus is pushing on everybody. He's pushing on the religious establishment. He's pushing on his own disciples. He's doing things that are unexpected and disturbing and disruptive. And he's doing that intentionally. So this morning, what I want to do is talk about two ways that Jesus disrupts our lives. He disrupts our lives religiously. That is our relationship with God. And he disrupts our lives relationally. That is the way we relate to other people. And this is essentially what Jesus does when he comes into our lives. He's there to disrupt you. He's there to throw you off your game. He's there to catch you by surprise. He's there to transform your life and to turn it upside down and make us look at things that are very different and look at things very differently. So what I want to do is unpack those two points, two ways that Jesus disrupts our lives religiously. That's in verses 1 through 20. And then two ways Jesus disrupts our lives, or sorry, I should say second way. The second way Jesus disrupts our lives relationally, which is in 21 through the end of the chapter. So it's basically going to split it in half. The first half, the first 20 verses are how Jesus disrupts us religiously. The second, approximately 20 verses, is how Jesus disrupts our lives relationally. And I have three areas of application underneath each one of those. So let's get into it. Number one, Jesus disrupts us religiously. Now the scene here in Matthew 15 as Jesus gets going is... The scribes and Pharisees come to him, who were the religious leaders of the day, and they come to Jesus specifically and ask him a pretty provocative question, which Jesus responds with an even more provocative question. You notice what he, what he, what the or the, the Pharisees say to him. They ask him, why do you, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Because the Pharisees notice that the disciples are not washing their hands when they eat. Now we have to understand what's going on here. It's not just talking about, you know, what we send our kids to do, like, hey, go wash up before you have dinner. This was a ceremonial circumstance which existed in the tradition of Israel in those days, which required that if the disciples were going to be purified, that they would need to wash their hands. And here's what's going on, is the scribes in that day, the Pharisees, the religious leaders in that day, what they were doing is they were studying the law of God and they were exploring all the different ways that the law was could be applied in various circumstances. And what they did is when they studied the law, they began to develop this tradition out of it, a code of conduct, so to speak. And it was called the tradition of the elders. And the teaching was then passed down from generation to generation with more and more tradition being added on to it. So eventually, 
the tradition and the law of God, the Bible in that day, the tradition and the Bible became basically on par with each other. In fact, the tradition oftentimes trumped the Bible in terms of its authority. And so what's going on with Jesus here is he's doing something that's violating the tradition, but not violating the Bible. And the religious leaders don't like that. Doesn't that strike you as odd? It struck Jesus as odd. He says to them in verse 3, in, in, he answers a question with a question, which is very typical of Jesus. He answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So how were the Pharisees breaking the commandments of God? I mean, these were the people that were writing traditions and laws to uphold the commandments of God. But Jesus says they're breaking them. Well, notice what he says. Verse 4, for God commanded, honor your father and mother. That's a commandment. Fifth one in the Ten Commandments. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Verse 5. But you say, you Pharisees say, in your tradition, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you made void the word of God. See, what's going on here is that there could be money that could be set aside by people that they would call Given to God. This is money that's been given to God and reserved for God. And therefore, they wouldn't use it to take care of their elderly parents. So they were using God to disobey God. And so what's going on is they're saying, see, I'm not obligated to give my money to my aging parents and make sure they're taken care of because I've given this money to the Lord. Because that's what the tradition said I could do. And Jesus says, your tradition is sin. Your tradition is enabling you to sin against God. And that's why he calls them in verse 7, you hypocrites. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, and he quotes from Isaiah, which Jonathan quoted for us earlier this morning. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine, teaching as Bible, the commandments of men. And so what's going on here is that Jesus is putting his finger on religious tradition and saying that in the end, religious tradition is not on par with the Bible. Scripture trumps it all. And where your tradition is contrary to Scripture, the tradition must be given up and Scripture obeyed. And so Jesus is a pure Bible guy. He's not going to be swayed by what religious leaders say about him and what they teach. He's going to check it against Scripture, which is what all of you should do should always be checking all teaching against the scripture, not the tradition of the church. Not what my friend says, not what TV preacher says, not what radio says, not what this book says, not what the Internet says. What does the Bible say? What does the scripture teach? And it doesn't teach that you can find a way to not obey the fifth commandment. So Jesus wants to push this down a little bit further. Verse 10, he calls the people to them and said, hear and understand. Listen to me. He says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. Because they're talking about defilement, right? Washing of hands and that removes defilement. So according to the tradition of the elders. 
He says, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. See, the Pharisees didn't understand what makes people sinful, what makes people defiled. It's not outside stuff, it's inside stuff. Verse 12, and then we already read that verse where he says, well, did you not know that the Pharisees were offended? Jesus doesn't care. Verse 13, he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Now, listen to that. He's saying these people are claiming to be representatives of God. They're not. They're not true to my father. My father didn't plant the Pharisees and the scribes. My father didn't raise them up. They raised themselves up. Look what he calls them. Verse 14. Let them alone. They're blind guides. They're blind. They think they're doing God's will. They're not doing God's will. They think they're obeying God. They're not obeying God. They think they're teaching the way of righteousness. They're not teaching the way of righteousness. They think they're leading people to God. They're leading people to hell. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. So, But Peter says to them, explain the parable to us. And Jesus, as is typical, responds to his disciples. Again? Do I have to talk about this again? Let's do it again. Okay. Are you still without understanding? So he says, verse 17, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. See, Jesus is disrupting our religious beliefs, isn't he? By nature, he's disrupting us. He's saying, look, it's not about receiving some sort of tradition and law code that you, that you give your life over to and, and then you hope by doing so that you'll be counted righteous and acceptable in God's sight. You gotta get this defilement on the inside cleansed. You have to find something that's gonna take care of the heart. It's not just going to take care of the hands and the external life. Let me apply this in a couple of different ways to us this morning as we think about how Jesus disrupts our lives religiously. I want to speak for a moment to those of us who have been in the faith a long time, older Christians among us. We've been in the faith decades. I've learned something about my life just being in the faith for the last 21 years, which is not a long time compared to even some of you in this room who have walked with Jesus for Multiple, multiple decades, some 40 and 50 years and 60 years in here. But I've learned this in my 21 years walking with Jesus, that the older I get and the longer I've been in the faith, the more of a temptation that I have to slip into Phariseeism. Majoring on the minors, being scrupulous and critical, caring about our reputation and wanting to be honored and acknowledged, And measuring holiness by adherence to some traditional values. Do you recognize that about yourself? It might surprise you that some of the greatest threats to faithful discipleship to Jesus come from highly esteemed religious traditions. While some of our practices and traditions can have a reputation for wisdom, being a scrupulous rule keeper in religion does not necessarily equate to godliness. When tradition is exalted over truth, we are able to find loopholes for disobeying God. Few things are more spiritually harmful 
than the outward practice of religion apart from a vital heart connection of repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. And the longer we're in the faith, the more dangerous that temptation can be for us because we learn how to be and live life independent of Jesus even as we're following him. Because you learn the rules, right? You learn the church code. You learn how to navigate your life with a degree of morality and where there's immorality, you learn to cover it up and hide that part from other people. And you learn to, you just learn the rules. You learn the ropes. And before you know it, you're this critical, self-absorbed, majoring on the minors, religious leader, teacher type. Don't have to necessarily be in the ministry or a pastor, although that's a particular temptation for spiritual leaders, definitely. But all of that can take place and all of a sudden there's this hardness and crustiness that can occur to a person over a period of time. So let me ask you some questions to to help probe your conscience a little bit and to rescue you. Because Jesus would rescue you this morning if you're in that condition. You're not too far gone. I believe Jesus wants to use his word to the Pharisees for in some of your lives this morning. Where you sense that there's this, there's this self-righteousness that's just welling up and, and living within your, your life. Let me ask you some questions. Are you currently repenting of sin? Are, are, is your sin, is your sin more heinous than other people's sin? Are, when was the last time you repented of sin? Or you just recognized when or other people needed to repent of sin. Are you conscious of your own defilement in a regular, ongoing way? That how, how sinful I am on the inside and how broken I am on the inside. And I can't even fix it. And sometimes I can't even explain it. And it leads you to a sense of, Honesty before the Lord and desperation before him to cleanse you and to help you. Do you recognize any propensity to care more about ritual than reality? Are you aware of the possibility that your heart can drift from God even in the midst of doing all the religiously correct things? How are things going in the secret place? That's where Jesus tells us to attack Phariseeism is to go to your devotional life, to go to your prayer time, to go to your Bible reading, to go to your worship of him. That's where Jesus called, in a way that nobody can notice, but just you and him. That's where we fight this. And when we don't devote ourselves to the secret place of prayer and reading scripture and pursuing the Lord independently, we are ripe for self-righteous Pharisaism. It will happen to us. It's just a matter of time. So you can pick which one you want. If you neglect the secret place, you invite Phariseeism into your life. But if you pursue Jesus in the secret place, you will make war on Phariseeism and Jesus will deliver you from it. Jesus came to deliver us from disguising a heart in rebellion to God by merely outward forms of religious devotion. This passage drives us to see our need for Jesus this morning. Does anybody else see their need for Jesus? I do. Maybe some of you need to have a fresh encounter with the grace of Jesus this morning. 
You need to, you need to, to say, Lord, rescue my wandering heart. Cry out to him. He will forgive you. He will restore you. He will heal you. He will help you. You're his child. He loves you. And he wants to keep you near to himself. This passage, so that's the first, that's the first little point of application. Second point of application under this heading of Jesus disrupts our lives religiously is, is I want to say a word to cultural Christians. Cultural Christians. A cultural Christian is someone who is Christian in name. They like the cultural identification of being a Christian. Now, in our day, that name is going, the Lord is purging cultural Christianity across our nation. But here in the South, in the Bible Belt, in our town, we still have a, a, a strong degree of cultural Christianity. And this passage teaches that it is possible to be thought of as a follower of God by everybody around you and actually not be one. I mean, everybody thought the Pharisees and scribes were the religious leaders. I mean, if anybody's right with God, it's these guys. And Jesus says they're all blind guides. They're not even right with God. So do do what Jesus tells us to do, which is judge us by their fruit. My sister-in-law, she gets on Facebook Live now and then, and she's... She loves the Lord Jesus and she's, she's passionate and she's, she lives in Nashville and she's, you know, I was seeing, I was watching this morning and I was just encouraged by her faithfulness. She just got on Facebook and she started to say, you know what? Friends of mine, I know you. And she's, she grew up, she had a hard life, very difficult. Jesus saved her out of a lot of, a lot of stuff, just like he did all of us. But she's speaking. She says, I cannot believe still that some of you all are walking around saying you prayed the salvation prayer and you prayed the sinner's prayer. And yet you're getting in bed with some guy and you're going to the club. Jesus doesn't lead you that way. Like, what are you talking about? Like this is, and he's talking about people who this is the pattern of their life. Not someone who stumbles and falls into sin as we all do, but someone who gives themselves over to a non lordship lifestyle. Like their life hasn't even changed one bit. And she's just staring into this whole problem and she's saying, that doesn't fit. That doesn't work. Just because you go into a church service and feel bad and pray a sinner's prayer doesn't mean that all's right in heaven. It doesn't mean that everything's okay with God. That could have been just false and fake. The only way you know it's real is if your life is being transformed. Because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life. So this passage would speak to those who would be tempted toward a cultural Christianity or to those who would think that just because someone names the name of Christ or calls themselves a follower of God, that they necessarily are. Jesus said we are to know them by their fruits and to know ourselves by our fruits, which is not a perfect, perfect life. It's a broken, repentant stuff that we talked about earlier. Thirdly, I just want to say a word to those of you who are not Christians. Now, this passage would teach you crystal clear that you cannot be made right with God by religious rule keeping. Church attendance or trying to be a better person. That is not the way it works. This passage calls you to recognize that you, like all of us, like everyone in this room, are defiled inside and we need to be cleansed by Jesus because he's the only one who can get inside of us and transform our hearts. So we need to repent of our sin and receive Christ as the only one who can purify and transform us from the inside out. As we'll see in a moment, verse 25, the appropriate response is, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. 
R.C. Sproul puts it this way. One pattern that I find among people who are Christians is that people frequently come to the end of themselves and only then do they turn to Christ. When they reach the end of their ropes, they do not seek Jesus only to negotiate or debate. They come on their knees crying for help. And so if you sense inside this morning as you sit in your chair that I'm defiled and I can't fix it. I can't fix it. I don't know how to change these desires that I have. I can't even control myself. I can't help myself or figure it out. You know what? You are so near to the kingdom. You are near to the kingdom. If you will turn outside of yourself to Jesus and cry out to him for help to save you and help you. And to cleanse you on the inside, from the inside out. To remove your defiled heart and to replace it with a new heart that loves him and longs for him. That's point number one. Jesus disrupts our lives religiously. Second point, Jesus disrupts us relationally. He disrupts us relationally. Now, after after Jesus kicks up some dust and stirs up the religious climate um, with his disciples, he now is going to proceed and to disrupt the relational climate of where he's living. He leaves the Jewish region for the first time to minister to Gentile provinces, which are non-Jewish people around Israel. Israel has been his main focus up through Matthew chapter 15, and now he's shifting the focus of his ministry to go to the, quote, untouchables, those who they're not supposed to interact with, especially religious leaders like Jesus. Israel has increasingly rejected Jesus, and now the Gentiles are going to begin to receive him and accept him. And as we'll see next week, when Jesus returns back to Galilee, tensions resume, and he'll have to leave again. So Jesus is leaving Galilee, and he's going to the Gentiles. We see that in verse 21, where we pick up the story. And Jesus went away from there, from Galilee, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out. Now, Canaanites, if you know your Old Testament and you know Joshua, I mean, these were God's arch enemies. This was Israel's problem nation. And they were instructed to wipe them out. And, and here, here, here are Israel's arch enemies, at least a woman who is identified as a Canaanite, coming to this, this Jewish teacher. This is very controversial socially, very controversial relationally. The disciples pick up on it. They know what's going on. But Jesus is not concerned, and he's going to pursue this woman. So notice, a behold, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. She didn't say it that way. She screamed it. I'm not going to scream it. But she, scre- I mean, she is crying out, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She recognized that he's an, he's an Israel rabbi. And she recognizes him as the Messiah. So she knows enough about the people of Israel that she could recognize Jesus for who he is. I think the Holy Spirit taught her. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This is a mother. Her heart is breaking over her daughter. The oppression, the demonic oppression that is existing in her daughter's life. And she's crying out to Jesus because... She has no other place to turn. Verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Jesus cannot be boxed in. We just can't figure him out, can we? 
he will not be figured out. And so he just doesn't answer her. He ignores her. And his disciples came. I mean, now she's going to the disciples and saying, why doesn't he listen to me? Why isn't he paying attention? I'm, I need help. Have mercy on me, son of David. Don't leave me. And he's just walking away. And the disciple, she keeps following and coming after them to the point where the disciples are just embarrassed and frustrated. And they go over to Jesus and they do some begging. The Canaanite woman's been begging. Now the disciples are going to beg and they beg Jesus, just tell her to go away. Tell her to go away. I mean, don't just do there, stand there and say nothing. She's crying out after us. We can't help her. And then he turns to his disciples and says, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then why are you going through Canaan? Why are you entire inside? And why are you interacting with this Canaanite? Why are you even here? I mean, Jesus has just gone outside of Israel into Gentile territory, and he turns to his disciples and says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He is setting them up. He is baiting them. Notice verse 25. But she came and she knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, lest we think that is a huge cultural ethnic insult, it almost is. It almost is. It almost is. He's saying, okay, the, I'm an Israel rabbi. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm the son of David. It's not right to take the bread that is meant for Israel and to give it to the Gentiles. Those who are outside, this would have been a household dog that he's referring to someone that's loved by the family, but it's not right. I mean, you feed the children first, then you feed the dogs. You don't feed the dogs first and let your kids starve, but he's drawing her out. He's drawing her out. Verse 27. She said, yes, Lord, Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. I mean, this woman's humility and the fact that she has zero entitlement. I mean, it just smacks American culture right in the face. This woman has zero entitlement. She doesn't believe Jesus deserves to give her anything. That's why she starts her petition with, have mercy on me. I am not worthy. I am contra merit. I'm not part of the people of Israel. Please look at me and have some pity and compassion. And she marshals a fantastic argument. Fantastic. She says, but yeah, you know, when you're feeding the kids and the crumbs and the kids, they don't eat. I mean, come over to our house. I've never seen my kids contain crumbs to a plate at all. So they're going to fall off and they're going to come on the floor and the dogs are going to come and lick them up. She says, there's plenty of crumbs. Look, there's crumbs that are going to, that are going to fall. Look, you can feed the children and the dogs too. And then Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you desire. And boom, daughter's healed instantly. And can you imagine just that scene and her just being absolutely overwhelmed with joy. 
I mean, tears streaming down her face. I can imagine her saying, you know, are you serious? Or are you just saying this? Do you, do you really mean? And Jesus probably, just go home, check. It's taken care of. She's fine. And her daughter was healed instantly, assuming that her daughter wasn't there with her, which possibly could have been the case, we're not told. But regardless, Jesus answers this woman's cry and plea. Now, what's going on here? Let me, before I do that, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna briefly overview these next two sections because it involves his ministry to the Gentiles. So he's ministered to a woman now, and now he's gonna go and he's gonna heal a bunch of random, non-Israel Canaanites and people from the Gentile regions, like perhaps Tyre and Sidon. So notice verse 29, Jesus went, goes on from there. He goes beside the Sea of Galilee, but this is not on the side of Israel because it's clear from that because the people are glorifying, verse 31, when Jesus is healing them and doing wonders and the mute are speaking and the crippled are made healthy and the lame are walking and the blind are seeing and he's doing all these miracles. It says in verse 31 that they glorified the God of Israel. So the people are not people of Israel. They're Gentiles who are glorifying the God of Israel for what Jesus is doing for them. So he's ministering to the Gentiles, and then he does it again in the feeding of the 4,000. Verse 32, Jesus calls his disciples to him and says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been without now with me for three days and have nothing to eat. They're just following him around. He's gathering huge crowds. I'm unwilling to send them away, Jesus says, lest they faint on the way. The disciple says, how in the world are we going to get this? Remember, they've already seen Jesus do this before. And yet, behold the unbelief that we can have. I mean, it's just amazing. And then verse 34, and Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. He gave thanks. He broke them, gave them the disciples. They went and handed them all out. Verse 37, they all ate and were satisfied. They took up seven basketfuls of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, much larger crowd than just 4,000. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So we've got Jesus now comprehensively caring for the Gentiles, not just this one Canaanite woman, but now he's comprehensively showing compassion to the crowds and great crowds are following him and he's picking up steam. And when he comes back into town, boy, is he going to get some heat for this because he's messing around with those Gentiles. Now, how can let me apply this? I want to apply this in three different areas of our lives. And the first way I want to apply it is to ourselves as the church. This is so important for us to get our identity right, church. Jesus brings good news to everyone, and he makes no distinction between people on the basis of ethnicity, social status, or economic background. We as Christians personally and the church generally are called to demonstrate in our attitudes and actions that we have the same level of acceptance of all kinds of people as Jesus had. What does this passage mean for the corporate life of a local church? It means that we, as God's people, too, should be marked by lavish compassion toward those outside of the church. We should love them sacrificially to our own hurt in ways that inconvenience us. Because Jesus has sent us, like him, even as the Father sent him, so he sends us into a culture. And we are to carry his attitudes and his actions and, yes, his gospel and message to them. 
It means that if we are going to be the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be, then we have to be eager and earnest and prayerful and deliberate to seek to attract the same kinds of people that Jesus attracted, which is not typically religious button-up types that have it all together. Those are Pharisees. We are looking for the broken. In fact, if you go to our church website and you click about us, here's what it says. Here's what we're about, at least what we're striving to be. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a savior. This church opened wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ. The mighty friend of sinners. The ally of his enemies. The defender of the indefensible. And the justifier of those who have no excuses left. That's the church. That's the church. In the church, we're supposed to find the kinds of relationships that can't be explained apart from supernatural activity. Which is things like faithful marriages. And multiple ethnicities and various social and economic backgrounds. Because Jesus comes to people and salvation comes to people that the first century Jewish culture would have regarded as the less honorable the women, the foreigners, the pagan idolaters. Jesus extends his salvation to all who believe regardless of language, class, ethnicity, etc. And we as a church must strive to let Jesus increasingly make us uncomfortable relationally. Where all of our friends, we have to work a little harder to be friends And where all of the, they're not just the natural affiliations that we would gravitate to, as wonderful as those things are, but those things are not supernatural. That doesn't require any Holy Spirit to do that. What requires the Holy Spirit is to love someone so different from you that you wouldn't even hang out with them otherwise, except that they're your brother and sister in Christ and you're going to spend eternity with them. And they're part of the family. So that's that's where Jesus is going to disrupt us relationally. And I... And I hope you'll join me in praying. Bring it on. So um, that's the first one about the church. Second one, I just want to say a word about our work lives and our family lives. You know, I think this passage, even though it's not talking about work necessarily, Jesus is doing work here, though. He's doing ministry. And our vocations, the things that God has called us to do, is a form of ministry. It's a form of service and care for people. And I think this passage releases us into the world as we head back into a new work week and back into our families with a perspective that we need to have. How should the way Jesus is treating people affect us when we go to work or in our families? As Jesus engages in work, how does his work affect our work? Let me ask you a couple questions. How interruptible are you? Jesus is willing to be interrupted. He's willing to go off the beaten path. He's willing to go into areas that maybe he shouldn't go into and, and, and the disciples certainly are puzzled by and the religious leaders are. But he's willing to be interrupted. He's willing to be inconvenienced. He's willing to be compassionate. And I think we have to be get very comfortable 
with being uncomfortable. And we have to be okay with extending ourselves to meet the needs of others, whether that be employees to employers or employers to employees, teachers to students, parents to children. We've got to extend ourselves because Jesus has extended such great compassion to us, shown us mercy. We were not entitled to anything that he gave us. We, he gave us a righteousness we didn't deserve. He gave us, he died on the cross. We didn't, we didn't deserve to have him absorb the penalty for our sins. He rose for our justification. We are accepted into his family as a result of faith and repentance and all this. And we receive this, this great compassion extended to us from our God. And we in turn are to extend that compassion to others all around us. We should be marked by the compassion of Jesus. He understands what people are going through. He takes time to listen. He doesn't make assumptions. He he enters into this Canaanite woman's problem. He draws her out. He wants to know more. When he, When the crowds are coming to him, they're following him and they're finding in him love and compassion. Notice what he said in verse 32. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry because they're going to faint on the way. He knows what they're going through. He's thinking of their problems. He's thinking of what might happen as a result of him not showing compassion to them. And we need to be the same way. We need to be thinking that way for others and not be so absorbed in our own little worlds that we don't even know what's going on with others. And then finally, just a word to the maturing Christian, which I I pray is what we all desire to be and what we want to be. And I just see a flow in this text that paints such a beautiful picture of what a mature Christian looks like. And and I've prayed it for myself and I'm praying it for us as well. That and here's just here's just what I would say is the four four kind of parts of the of the picture here of what a mature Christian looks like. We recognize our tendency to be self-righteous and pharisaical and find ways to disobey God by our traditions. We, we're more concerned with the external than the end, but we're being persuaded more and more that the main problem in the world is me. Is me. I'm the main problem. And so... It stops being about everybody else and stops being about what everybody else is not doing and what they should be doing. It starts being about me and what I am by nature, which is a sinner in desperate need of the grace of God every single moment of my life. So we stop focusing on the external so much. We start focusing on the internal, what's going on. And then we run to Jesus in fresh dependence, crying out to him for mercy with humility and zero entitlement. That's a mature Christian. A mature Christian is someone who knows how little, and in fact, how they don't deserve anything that the Lord has given to them. And they're thankful for everything. And they recognize that the only thing that they brought to the table in their salvation was the sin that made Jesus' death necessary. That's all we brought to the table. And so we are tempted to think from time to time, that God owes us a little more than what he's given and that we deserve what he's given us. But what we come to understand is, no, that's deadly. The only merit that I have before a holy God is demerit. My only hope to stand before a holy and righteous God is by appealing to his mercy and grace, for it is by his grace alone that anyone enters the kingdom. 
And so we're transformed as a result of that. We're transformed by the mercy and grace of Jesus into people who are compassionate and sacrificial disciples who put the needs of others ahead of our own. That's what it means to be a mature Christian. I think we see that pattern played out with the Pharisees, with the Canaanite woman, and with the feeding of the healing and the feeding of the crowds. And I just want to close with this. Brothers and sisters, let us be ever thankful that Jesus didn't limit his salvation to the Jews because we're all here this morning. We are here because of what Jesus did in Matthew 15. Do you understand that? You are a Gentile, most of you. Perhaps some of you, few of you might have a Jewish background, but most of us in this room are Gentiles. We are foreigners. We are pagan idolaters. And yet Jesus, in his compassion, and because the purpose is not just to save the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Therefore, we can say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And so we sit here this morning because of what Jesus did in Matthew 15 and how thankful we are, Jesus, that you are so kind to disrupt us in our religion and our relationships and bring us to yourself. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you this morning for what you have revealed about your son in this passage to us this morning. Help us by your grace to welcome the disruption of Jesus into our lives more. We thank you that you have disrupted us. Lord Jesus, you have come. And for most of us in this room, you have radically disrupted us. You have stopped us in our tracks. You have humbled us in our sin. You have made us aware of our need for mercy. And you have enabled us by your spirit to cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And you have saved us and redeemed us and received us and adopted us and brought us into your family and sealed us by your spirit. And we are thankful to you for interrupting our our lives. But you've disrupted us in justification. We need you to disrupt us in sanctification, too. We need you in an ever ongoing, faithful, loving way to make our discipleship disruptive. We welcome you into our lives afresh this morning. We pray that you would move and help in all the ways that we still remain needy of you and needy of further grace to press on and to be the kind of disciples of whom the world is not worthy. So help us, God. Help us, Jesus, to trust you, to know that all of your ways toward us are good and kind and for our best. Help us not to cave into fear or despair or doubt, but help us to welcome your loving influence in our lives, your shaping influence. Bear the fruit of the Spirit out in our lives. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.